Hi everyone and welcome to this third episode of Science of Doing Science. I am Adrien, researcher at Synopsys, a meta-science group at the University of Cyprus. Today I have the pleasure to talk with Mario Goldwitzer, a social psychologist at the University of Munich. And Mario is also a coordinator of MetaRep, a German meta-scientific program to analyze and optimize replicability in the behavioral, social and cognitive sciences. My first question is about uh, who you are, where are you from, and be before knowing about MetaSense, what kind of work were you doing uh, before that? Yeah, I'm Mario, Mario Golwitzer. I'm working at the University of Munich in Germany, and I'm a social psychologist um, slash methodologist. So I'm, I'm, I've always been doing social psychology in research, but I had... Um, Um, a time in my career in which I uh, was teaching methodology and statistics, design uh, methods, uh, and I say the combination between um, social psychology and methodology made me particularly vigilant towards the <laughs> towards the replication uh, debate that we're having because um, the replication crisis hits social psychology particularly hard, I would say. You teach methodology for undergraduate and graduate students, like general, or you have a specific field? Yeah, I had. Um, so when I was at the University of Marburg, um, which is also in Germany, I was teaching methodology for undergraduate students and graduate students. In Germany, this the equivalent is bachelor in a bachelor program and a master's program. And... Um, And we were also, um, so I was also teaching courses on how the research process works, how uh, peer review works, um, how journals work, how uh, the funding process works. And, um, and in discussions with the students back then, the, um, it's interesting to, it was interesting to see that many of the questions that the students raised in these courses are now being much more explicitly discussed in the entire field than they used to be. So, for example, the question, who are the, who are the reviewers and why is there a blind review? What's the pro and con of, of double blind review? Um, how much power does an editor have when making an editorial decision? Shouldn't uh, um, what are the what are the ultimate criteria of evaluating a research proposal for a for a, like a, um, a funding for for a research project at the German Research Foundation or so? Wouldn't it be so if all if if the if um, if there are 20 excellent research proposals and the DFG the German Research Foundation can only fund 10 of them, would it be fair to just flip a coin and then, and then see. <laughs> these were the questions we were discussing. And it's interesting that exactly these questions are coming up now. You were a teacher, uh, but also a researcher. Well, what kind of research uh, were you conducting at that moment? Yeah, um, so my research was always uh, connected to uh, questions of social justice. So um, one one of the questions, let me give you two examples. One, one question I've been um, dealing with since my dissertation is revenge what what is revenge why why and when do people take revenge 
And then is revenge sweet? When is it sweet? What is sweetness? What, is revenge, <laughs> what does revenge have to do with uh, justice? And this was one um, this was one line of research. And just uh, as a uh, so bottom line of this research program is I, I consider and now consider revenge as a as a communicative act. So by taking revenge, a victim tells the perpetrator, yeah. "You cannot do this to me. Don't Give mess a with me." Give yeah. A Right. And so uh, revenge, revenge or retaliation was one of the things I was interested in, or I'm still interested in. And the other, um, another line of research I've been pursuing is um, justice sensitivity. Justice sensitivity is a personality trait. People reliably differ in um, how important justice is to their personal lives. And there is one aspect of justice sensitivity that I'm most interested in, and this is called justice sensitivity from a victim's perspective. And this reflects the uh, the idea that people differ in how sensitive they are to justice issues that put them in a, in a victim position. And what we find is that if people are particularly sensitive towards being or becoming a victim of injustice, that makes them very, very likely to behave unjust themselves or uncooperatively themselves. It is as if those victim-sensitive people run through the world with a with a latent alarm system, um, uh, and that and they're constantly anxious of being exploited, being taken advantage of, and and this this constant this latent fear of being exploited makes them. Uh, less willing to contribute to public goods or or being cooperative in social dilemmas and being solidary and so on. This is something that I'm interested in very much. Very interesting when you think about uh, the way democracy works, like thinking about these uh, threats to democracy. It's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. We have a we have a um, we have a research program, a research pro project right now, in which we are trying to find out whether political parties strategically use victimhood narratives to mobilize or attract followers, attract people. And our idea is that, um, or what we're, what we're trying to do is identify victimhood narratives in party programs and election programs. And then we're trying to find out who is who is uh, particularly sensitive towards these victimhood narratives? Who who are the persons who who say, "Oh yeah, this is really unjust. We have to do something against this. I'm gonna um, vote for this party in the next election." So yeah, because it's a latent threat, then people it are more, some people are more sensitive than the others. So this is why what you're looking for. Exactly. Okay. Really interesting. <laughs> really interesting in itself. It's not the subject of our podcast, but really yes. interesting in itself. So the, the, the following question is, uh, when was the last, the, the first time you heard about meta science, uh, the science of doing science? And why have you find some interest in that? What is the motivation you had in exploring this area? Yeah. Yeah, to answer this question, um, I think I need to go back in time a little bit because I was 
um, and I hope this doesn't doesn't become too lengthy um, uh, and too tedious. But um, I think it's an important story, and it's still uh, it, it it's still telling the story still has some. Uh, upsetting quality even to me who's telling the story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me try. Um, we really like stories here, so no problem. <laughs> Very good. Um, I happen to be in the executive board of the German Psychological Society between uh, 2014 and 2018 for four years. I was a secretary in the, in the executive board. And um, as secretary, I was uh, responsible for uh, the internal communications or for the, among the members of the psych psychological society in Germany, but also for external communication, for press releases and um, statements and and so on. And as you know, 2015 was the was the year in which um, the uh, one of the most disturbing. Um, studies on the state of replicability in psycho psychology was published, and that was the Reproducity, Reproducibility Project Psychology by the Open Science Collaboration, published in Science, and that showed, this study showed that uh, only a fraction of studies, like 36 or 37 percent, were actually, be, were actually uh, replicable, could be replicated in a direct replication. And um, the, so uh, science um, wrote a press release and a day later the, the article was published and then we in the, in the executive board were wondering what are we going to do with this um, and it was totally clear that we, we would have to issue a statement or a press release but the um, I would say the a good understanding of what that means uh, what it implies what consequences that has on the entire field, that it was too early at that time. Yeah, I mean, it, it was one of the one of the starting points for a big, big and long discussion and a very fruitful discussion. But at that time, um, there was a lot of time pressure on us, and we were just we were discussing how do we want to set up this uh, press release, and then. And our first press release that we issued a couple of days later after the after the article was published was really something that I would never do again. We totally, I would now in retrospect say, we totally underestimated, uh, uh, totally misrepresented the the impact of that study. One of the sentences, for example, we wrote in our press release is. Well, yeah, there's not much to worry about. It's at least 37%. It could have been worse. Psychology as a field is doing all it can to uh, remedy the situation and to increase its reproduction. So it sounded like uh, like minimizing. Yeah, and reassuring. And that was not a bad, I mean, that was not, we, we, it sounded like a denial of what was actually going on. And and the, the thing is, we were just not, we, there was just a lot of, um, uncertainty um, surrounding this. I, I have a very naive question, yeah. uh, but uh, why did you have to publish uh, these statements this soon? Like, yeah, because um, journalists and uh, publishers um, asked us to. So they were so they 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 they, they called us. They wrote emails, and in, instead of uh, responding to each of these emails individually. So they were, they, they were seeing the study in science and were saying, hey, German Psychological Society, what's your point on this? What's your take on this? What do you say? Okay. Uh, you have to have a say. And so that was the reason. And um, 
And yeah, and we were pretty, I, I mean, I was pretty naive then. And then what happened was uh, what you would call now a shitstorm against us and the executive board from those people who, who um, quickly understood the impact of this study, of the science study. And and um, and told us, hey, you're you're misrepresenting what's going on here, and they were right, I would say, um, totally. And that, but but then dealing with the shitstorm, um, trying to learn more about what it means, um, linking this to other discussions that if, uh, that we had already in social psychology, for example, about p hacking, flawed incentive systems in science, um, we. I mean, one thing that may, may sound absurd now, um, seven or eight years later, but back back in the days, we were just slowly learning how all of these things are connected to each other. And it sounds naive now, but it, it yeah, yeah, maybe it was naive back then. <laughs> <laughs> but that got me really, really interested in, in uh, meta science. And one of the questions that I'm still, um, that I'm still struggling with, and it's still fascinating to me, is how much of how much of the non-replicability of psychological effects is actually due to false positives effects in original studies that have never been that were total. I mean, uh, yeah, false positives effects that shouldn't have been found in the first place. And what could be other reasons? Um, for example. Uh, maybe we we have the wrong criteria to judge replication success or failure, and this is something that I find super interesting. What is the next step? Like uh, you you were the secretary of um, this association, and and then uh, how you were more involved in yeah. in, in meta science yeah. after that? So we quickly learned that. Um, we quickly learned that it's um, um, that the 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 36, 37 percent, the low replication rates we have in psychology is an alarming figure. That's something we quickly learned, and it, we also quickly learned that we have to do something against this. And this doing something against this has to be on a structural on a structural level. Um, and we also quickly learned that without a culture of error spotting and correction or a correctability in science, um, we will get nowhere. So one of the things we did, and I'm and now in, <laughs> in retrospect, I'm proud to say that in psychology, at least in Germany, we were one of the first disciplines to develop a, um, a psychology-specific framework for data sharing. So we issued in very quickly already in 2016, the beginning of 2016, we issued uh, recommendations for data sharing in psychology. And uh, one of the recommendations was all data should be shared on a, on a, on a repository, on a trustworthy repository, uh, no matter with, whether the data are published or not. And um, and we, we uh, discussed issues around co-authorship and we discussed issues around how um, people who would like to reuse the data should communicate with the original authors. And um, yeah, and I think that became an important document. Why so? Why the, the researcher who wants to replicate the study should contact the original author. What is the reason for that? 
to remove misunderstandings. So um, one one thing I, I I think happened quite quite often is that um, the inability to reproduce results that original authors found was due to a misunderstanding. So maybe the maybe the code was I mean putting raw data on some website uh, doesn't make the data. Uh, necessarily reusable. Um, what you need to have there is metadata, a file that explains what the variable means, what the um, what the different levels of a variable mean, um, how they should be coded, and also the, the, the code that, uh, in, in, in the old days, the syntax, mm -hmm. um, a file that, that uh, shows you how a model is, um, has been specified. So, so, so then, what's the point of having a method section in in our studies, in our articles, if uh, it leads to misunderstanding? Yeah. It's like a provocative question, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that the that publishers always say is that journal space is precious, and it should be a method section in a in an article should be uh, um, should be just sufficiently informative to um, to enable um a replication of the study but then the devil's in the detail in in the methodological the the, the question of how the data were collected and um and and cleansed and uh and and uh made ready for the main analyses and then um analyzed in the main analyses and so on there's a lot of there are a lot of decisions that are made there, and they are not usually made explicit in the methods section or the results section of a paper. And now, uh, journal space is not the issue anymore because we have webs, we have repositories such as the Open Science Framework, or in Germany, Psych Archives, and there's lots of space to store the data, the metadata, the code, and now it's much, 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 much easier. Um, to make your data reusable and then reproduce the original results. I still have questions uh, regarding uh, what you say. The, the first one is you said that you issued a recommendation. Mm -hmm. But um, as far as I know about it, uh, recommendations uh, are not sufficient in, in itself. So how do you manage to make people follow these recommendations uh, as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a difficult question. I mean, there are, as you know, with uh, making data publicly available, um, lots of additional questions are um, related. For example, there are in 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 uh, in some research areas, um, people have sensitive data. Um, there sometimes um, in biomedical research or imaging research, it's not quite clear under what circumstances raw data about brain structures can be tied to, can be de-individuated, so an individual can be... Anonymized and the data can be confidential. Yeah, right. Or in, in clinical research or in organizational research. So there are, um, there are some uh, difficult issues and I can totally understand that some people who are dealing with these issues have reservations about making their data publicly open. And this is why in a revision of our data management uh, recommendations, we are now um, outlining four 
different, how do you call them, um, access, access categories or storage categories. Um, there are data that can be made open without hesitation, so no problem, no privacy issues, no data protection law issues at all. Um, but then there are data where the original author, the, the person who collected the data, and potential reusers have to agree on certain things. So, for example, one of the things being that the reuser declares that he or she will never try to re-identify single individuals with the data. Um, up to um, the most, the, the strictest access category, which means that the data are stored in a research data center and can only be accessed on site in a secure room with access to a secure server and so on. And, um, and I think this is important and it, and, and, and it shows people who have reservations about making the data public that there's always there are always workarounds. There are always solutions. Um, do you, do you have data about how these recommendations are used by the researchers in Germany and if it's effective? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. The only no, we don't know how many how many use. I mean, no, it's not true. We are um, we are currently in the process of collecting these data. So we're trying to find out how many people store their data in which of these access categories and why they do so but this is a this is a constant progress the revision of the data recommendation of the data sharing recommendations has been uh, published two years ago so it's pretty fresh yeah. um, so it makes sense to wait a couple of years until we have solid and representative data on who chooses which category in and why not but what we do have is um, surveys about researchers' um, opinions and attitudes about our recommendations. So whether they think they are useful, whether they think, whether they're willing to follow them. So it is no hard data, but at least some, some soft data. And there's one interesting, um, there's one interest, interesting finding there, which is that uh, there's, an, there's an age effect or a, or a academic career effect. Um, people who are younger early career researchers are much more willing, much more positive, have a much more positive attitudes about the data sharing recommendations than older people. Um, we also, in, the, in these surveys, we also asked about perceived opportunities and drawbacks or perceived um, pros and cons. And what is also interesting to see is that younger people notice and mention much more pros of data sharing, but also much more dangers or much more risks. So, for example, younger people, early career researchers, are more likely to state that they, one one of the one of the fears they have is that other people will take advantage of them. If they are the only if they are the only ones in their community who make their data public, and no one else does. They are doing all the work. People can reuse the data and make publications out of them, and that will gain that will give others a career advantage that they might not have. This is a, this is a worry that early career researchers have. And but yeah, I mean, the, um, fair enough. It's a very valid point. And um, but there are developments, more recent developments for these concerns too. 
So, for example, the, the German Research Foundation, the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, our, our main funder in, in Germany, now also allows published data file as a scientific product, an outcome, to be listed in your CV. Um, oh, so yeah, it's a huge advancement. Uh, absolutely. This situation, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There are lots of development in that area. Okay, quite uh, quite impressive because it, it's always difficult when, when you work on this kind of projects to to make it uh, useful for your uh, CV and yeah, and, and yeah. after uh, you you created these recommendations with uh, the group of researchers, what, what is the next step? Because I know that the last step is the creation of MetaRep and we will discuss about it uh, in, in a few time, but in between, what, what, what was your uh, your research and, and your advancement in, in meta science? Yeah. Yeah, I was so the 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 question of how how does the how does the community in 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 Germany how do they receive our recommendations? That was one of the main uh, questions we pursued. Is that um, is is data sharing something that the majority of people in Germany would um, would say yes, okay, I, I see the point, let's do it, or have reservations? And my impression is also that these. Um, that the reservations are are decreasing right now so people are get people get more researchers colleagues get more and more positive about data sharing which is good so that was one research activity in the meta science um, field and then the the one of the questions i'm i'm super interested in is um and that may be due to my social psychological background in research how much does the context in which you do, in which you conduct studies, affect the replicability of your results. And I'm I'm perfectly aware that referring to context as a let's call it a container concept makes epistemo uh, it just makes no sense. You can all you can always justify a failed replication of effect X by referring to context. Yeah, the original study was conducted under certain uh, context characteristics. They were absent in the replication study, so no wonder that the replication didn't find the original effect. But um, so this is but this is the boring uh, aspect of context. And what I'm interested in is can we, I mean, on the contrary, I think that context does matter. Um, things that um, materials that have been used in the 1980s just don't work anymore nowadays. So, um, and then a study that has been conducted in the US maybe does not really work in Italy and so on. And I'm trying to find ways to model these, these context characteristics to make replication research better. So once you understand which context characteristics, characteristics have to be held constant in order to have a fair chance of replicating the original result, that um, reduces your degrees of freedom in, in replication research. And I think this is what we need. Mm. There, there is also this idea of distinguishing between historical effects and cumulative effects. Like historical effects are effects that can be found once, once in a particular context, yeah. when cumulative effects are effects that can, can be replicated because of the particularity of this effect. Yeah. It is very interesting to distinguish between the two and it's not that evident. Um, 
yeah, you say that we can uh, put everything in context, but I also know that you distinguish several aspects of context that we can uh, that you can share with us and and explain like the four categories that you use in, in your yeah. research. Yeah, um, one. Um, so I would say the 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 from the four categories, you probably mean units, treatment, outcomes, and setting. And this is a differentiation that goes back to Kronbach in the 1980s. And units being the participants or the, the sample characteristics, um, treatments being the, the, the levels of, a, of the independent variable, so the experimental manipulation, for example, outcomes, the, the dependent variable, and setting, well, yeah, the setting in which an experiment or a study takes place, including such things as the room, the country, the culture, the experimenter, experimenter participant interactions, and so on. The latter, so the setting uh, setting category is probably the hardest part because it's the it's it's so vague, it's so fuzzy. Um, um, but the other ones are clearer. And for example, looking at uh, treatments and outcomes in psychology, we know what a manipulation check is. Manipulation check means that uh, if you want to experimentally manipulate a particular variable, a particularly unobserved variable, um, you need to have some empirical evidence that this worked. So for example, if in my studies and in justice research, if we have a condition in which participants are treated unfairly and the control conditions in which participants are, are treated fairly, we need to find out whether our exper experimental manipulation actually um, makes this perception of being treated fairly or unfairly, uh, if, if that actually works. And, um, and one thing that, uh, that should be regularly done, much more regularly done, is um, conducting a manipulation check in a study, in an original study, and then also in a replication study, because a failed manipulation check in a replication could be one potential reason for not being able to replicate the effect. And outcomes, um, the third category also, um, if you have more than one indicator for the outcome variable, it is possible to test whether there is, um, whether the measurement model, the psychometric properties of your measure differ between the original study and the replication study. But the prerequisite, the necessary prerequisite for doing that is you have to have more than one outcome measure. And this is not always the case. For example, in the many labs projects, only 40% of all studies included in many labs and uh, um, studies actually use more than one uh, outcome measures. So yeah. Um, and so, because they weren't aware uh, of this issue or because it was not convenient to use more than one outcome? Probably because the original study uh, also used only one outcome. Yes, yeah, so they preferred uh, to make a direct replication with the exactly. exact material than yes. improving the the design. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This is yeah. this is a, a subject of debate. Uh, do, 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 if we want to replicate something, should we replicate as close as possible as the original effect, or should be, uh, sh should we try to improve 
uh, the way we uh, put in exerg an effect. Mm. Yeah, uh, I'd say the answer is probably it depends on what you want. Um, a direct re replication gives you a, a good idea about the robustness of a finding, a robustness against sample characteristics because it's not the same sample anymore, and setting characteristics because it's not the same setting anymore. Uh, whereas conceptual replications give you gives you a better idea about the robustness against not only sample, not only setting, but also outcome and treatment, because they can differ too. In a conceptual yeah. replication, the treatment can be different and the outcome can be different. Yeah. The, the question is, do you want to replicate the experiment or do you want to replicate the theories? Like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and then... I don't know how to go to uh, talking about MetaRep. Mm -hmm. So if you have something else to say about the years between, I, I don't know what kind of year, uh, what year is there, to, to 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. something like yep. that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have uh, another thing to share uh, that you haven't talked about, mm -hmm. or if you want to introduce MetaRep and how it was created, it's up to you. Yeah, maybe one thing leads to the other, <laughs> I would say. Um, we were, um, so while um, developing our data sharing recommendations in the society, um, we were also in constant uh, discussions with the, with the funder, with our funder in Germany, with the German Research Foundation. And because they were interested in what that, what the whole development, what the whole um, reform in science means for their funding system. So, for example, one of the questions they had was, do, should we should we take a data management plan and a specific commitment to sharing data? Should we put that on our criteria list for evaluating, for assessing research proposals? And how strict should we do that? And also, do we want to, so when we, whenever, I mean, it's probably not only in Germany, it's probably also in other countries, but if you have completed a research project, you have to file re file report, write a final report and submit it to the funder. And in that final report, nobody actually, in back in the days, nobody was actually asking for what happened to the data. What did you do with the data? And so the DFG was asking, uh, should we include that as one of the mandatory chapters in a final report, data management, and make that an assessment criterion, an evaluation criterion? So to what extent has the, has the PI for that project taken care of storing their data in a repository, yes or no? And and while discussing these things with the DFG, with the with the German Research Foundation, I, we we spoke to one of the officials there, and and this person said at the, at, I remember at one dinner, hey, um, it strikes me that many of these questions that we're discussing here are actual empirical questions. They are actual scientific questions. Why isn't there a consolidated? Uh, interdisciplinary research endeavor looking at exactly those questions. So, for example, how does the scientific reform that we are now implementing in psychology and also in other disciplines, how does that change practices? How does that change um, the relationship between PIs and funders? How does that change the public's trust in science? So, what, in other words, what effects does that have? 
on the entire scientific process. And this caught our attention. <laughs> said, "Well, yeah, the guy is right. We need a We need a. We need something as a as a something like a research consortium looking at exactly these questions." Um, so, in the next step, uh, with a couple of uh, colleagues, we put together and call it an implementation proposal for a priority program, uh, looking specifically at meta science. And we're submitting it to the to the DFG, and and then got first first time got rejected, <laughs> but then we we uh, edited it, revised it, resubmitted it again, and second time was uh, was accepted. And now uh, we have a priority program, MetaRap, the one you mentioned, and it's funded for six years, two phases, three years each. And um, it can fund up to 14, 15 individual projects who are dealing with meta science, who are, who are dealing exactly with the question, what is, what does replicability mean? What does robustness mean in different disciplines, in the cognitive sciences, in psychology, in the social sciences, in education research, and so on? What are the reasons for low and varying replication rates? And the third question is, how does a reform, how do reforms in science affect the entire scientific process? And this is what we're doing. We are in the middle of uh, phase one now and looking forward to what the individual projects will come up with. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so there are several individual projects. Then you uh, reunite and share or um, uh, discoveries with each other's but uh, there are many different uh, projects. You you have uh, researchers in psychology, researchers in sociology, you have many different disciplines that are interconnected. Yeah. This is very interesting, like to collaborate with people. You also have uh, economists, uh, if, if, if yeah. I'm correct. Right. Right. And it, and it really a total variety, and it's very it's all all of them are tackling fascinating research questions. For example, one one research question that the um, that people who are working with observational data, for example, our sociology colli colleagues, um, they are addressing the question: How much does um, how much do um, specific uh, modeling choices, pre-processing choices, pre-processing decisions? in an analytical pipeline, and then decisions about how to include and whether to include covariates in a model, how does that affect? Um, I mean, robustness is, is one of the issues that many people talk about. Um, and there's the, the idea that testing robustness of a model of a finding can be done by trying as many uh, variants uh, of analyzing the data as possible and seeing how strongly the effects vary. But this can be, there should be, I think there should be um, good practice recommendations for these kinds of analyses, so-called multiverse analyses too, and the sociology colleagues are doing that right now. They are working on best practices for doing multiverse analysis or robustness checks with observation data. Super fascinating. And another project is looking at the incentive structures in science, and they are doing agent-based modeling. And by simulating, um, by, by, by looking at the outcomes of their agent-based models, which they simulate, they can uh, find out 
how which kinds of reforms are more likely to lead to uh, more productivity in science or less productivity in science, uh, higher or lower replication rates. Also a super fascinating project. This is really interesting because uh, Zach is also an economist and we had a long debate on that. Uh, about incentives, how incentives can help open science, good practices, etc. And it is like not an easy answer because we know that morally it's the best way to conduct science. Mm-hmm. But is it the more efficient? Is it the the the, the one that uh, like the best path for individuals in academia for their uh, own uh, career, etc.? It's very complicated, and how we can change incentives? Uh, re- reviewers are not paid for reviewing, so uh, this is like that. There are lots of of debates in, in this area. Um, yeah. So I, I, like I, I'm, I'm a bit um, fascinated by how economists are trying to modelize everything in this situation because as a psychologist I don't understand everything that <laughs> what they do. Um, <laughs> but, but but I would like to have the answer on, on that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, you can. Uh, what helps is that you can think of this as um, complementary perspectives on the same issue. So how how can we make science better, more robust, and scientists more happier, and the general public more willing to trust scientists and what they do? Uh, I mean, that's the ultimate goal, right? And um, the economics. So the the question of how could an how should an incentive system be structured to make that more likely? is um, just as valuable as looking at, no, attitudes towards data data management recommendations as we do it in psychology. It it leads uh, to a question I I had and I didn't know when to put it, but uh, it's really interesting because you talked a lot about data sharing. You talked a a bit about reproducibility, but one core part of metascience is also dealing with the public and dealing with um, policymakers. Yes. Uh, I would like to have your view on on that uh, because uh, you you said... uh, you, you talked a lot about the reproducibility crisis, so the trust in science, um, and, and so how do scientists should communicate with the policymakers and the public? And uh, I think you, you, you have many things to say in this regard. Okay, yeah. Um, one thing that could be interesting in that regard is um, a couple of years ago, there was a um, there was a survey among um, scientists, among researchers, um, also about the question: Why won't they? Why are they reluctant to share their data, not with the public but with other scientists? And one of the co- one of the um, if I remember correctly, one of the one of the the most important reasons, one of the most frequently uh, given reasons for being reluctant to share one's data with colleagues was. If they discover an error and then publish the fact that I have made an error on some website, on some blog, via Twitter, via some via social media, that will damage my reputation and undermine people's trust in my science considerably. That was one of the main concerns. I think it's a valid concern. We shouldn't downplay this. It's a it's it can happen actually. 
Yes, but it also cannot happen. For example, Gilad on his website, he has a check me, replicate me yeah. a section uh, saying I can pay you if I find errors in my in my studies. And yeah. yeah, absolutely. But this is a change of culture. And if I would say if the culture changes in a way that admitting errors and and finding errors does not necessarily lead to a damage of your reputation, then we're fine. Then we're fine. Right. Right. Um, and I think Gilad is, is working towards that and other people are working towards that too. But we have we also, I think, have to accept that there are people out there who have a different attitude towards this and uh, who take some, let's say, pr pride, maybe pride is not the right word, but who are, who are um, at least having fun uh, um, really uh, identifying errors in other people's work. And that is probably harming the field. Um, but one of the things uh, we've been <clears throat> we we've been in in my group here have been dealing with uh, empirically is to what extent does admitting faults and admit and to what extent does expressing your doubts about your own work undermine or affect the public's trust in your work at all? And it could go both ways. So there's a it, it's possible that by Referring to your own work as, mm, I'm not sure, I have my doubts, my studies had weaknesses, blah, 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 might undermine people's trust in your work, but it could, at the other at the other hand, it could increase the public's trust in your work. And what we find in, in several studies is that admitting errors or being self-critical towards your own research actually increases the public's trust in your work. And that is a very, very important message to uh, to researchers don't worry i mean in general i mean it's not a deterministic effect right but in general don't be too anxious about admitting errors and be self-critical about your work because the public will actually be more thankful than uh, skeptical about this this is one part uh, yes. is talking about the public uh, what about a discussion with policy makers um how can how can we inform them better if we are not sure about the effects we have in, in our studies? Yeah, yeah. Uh, to be honest, my I have this. This is the this is a question where I have, don't have a good answer. Um, on the one hand, uh, what I see, and I mean, we had a we had a big uh, worldwide pandemic um, uh, just a couple of years ago. We're we're still in in the face of pandemic. And and we have a we have crises all along the way. There's an environmental crisis, a climate crisis. There are um, there are wars, and so and and social science has so much to say. The the let me frame it differently. The 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 media's, the publics, the policymakers' demand for answers from social scientists is so large. It's so big. Um, I've never been addressed. I, I've never been contacted by the media and policymakers um, more often than than now than these days, or let's say last two years. And uh, and and in general, I would say we shouldn't be too. Um, the the fact that we do have a replication crisis shouldn't make us too um, hesitant to give away our knowledge, things we have to say about social justice, about peace and conflict, about crisis, about 
health, about risk um, risk assessment, individual risk assessment and protection measures and so on. Their psychology has a lot to say about this. But then again, on the other hand, the there is a replication crisis and we don't know uh, how much of the effects in a particular field, such as social justice, is actually as robust as we thought they are. So, ah, I I don't I cannot give you a good answer on this. Really interesting because I yeah I, I also think that it's a cultural issue. Like in France, uh, when you are talking in the media, you have to uh, be self-confident and certain about what you are saying. Oh. Like if you say I'm not sure about that, it's not possible. You you will not ever see in on the television someone say. I'm not sure about that. Like it's not possible. Mm -hmm. So convey uncertainty about something is a bit complicated. Like for example, about the the use of the mask for the COVID-19, there was a Cochrane uh, review, uh, like the last month or two months ago, saying that we only have two studies. They're of, of low quality. So the best we can say is that we don't really know if if masks are are effective. Uh, for this pandemic. Then you have researchers who said, yes, we don't have strong studies in for COVID-19, but we know that for uh, air spread uh, disease, uh, mask works. So we don't really need to have one very high quality study in this regard. But many people in the media said, because this Cochrane review say we don't know, it means that it's not useful. Yeah. And so it's a bit complicated to like have convey uh, uncertainty and explain to people that uncertainty doesn't mean that we should not do anything. So it's a really tricky aspect. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a super tricky aspect. What what, what I think, I mean, the public, the public, I mean, let's talk about the public as if it was one entity, which it is not, right? It's a, it's a bunch of people who are with very, very different motives and very different uh, <laughs> um, Intellectual capacity also, um, but let's let's talk about the public. The public is in general, it's not stupid. So um, you can you can actually it's it it should be possible to tell the public that one study is based on a simulation and has never been conducted in the real in the field. And this is something that the the public should understand. Um, another thing that the public should understand, and I know we know they do is that if you say, I am a, let's say, virologist, and I can only tell you about the effects of, uh, I can only tell you something about how a virus reproduces and under what conditions we can stop the reproduction of the virus, but I am not an economist and I cannot tell you anything about the economic opportunity costs of a lockdown. And so admitting your your boundaries of knowledge is something that I personally missed in many of the uh, expert interviews. We had in, in Germany, we had a couple of uh, good examples of uh, laudable examples, but there were also many, many people who uh, sp spoke about things that were so clearly outside their boundary of knowledge. And this is something that the public certainly picks up on and understands. And it's totally fine for a researcher to say, thank you for the question, but I can't give you an answer because it's outside my knowledge of my, my knowledge boundary. 
it's not common to have this kind of answer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's go back to to you, actually. because I, again, I emphasize that during our meeting, you talked a lot about data sharing. And my question is, why do you put so much importance in that? Like, what is your motivation in dealing with this particular problem? Mm. Mm, yeah. And not another, like this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, yeah, maybe, maybe two answers. Uh, uh, a dumb answer and a more interesting answer. And the dumb answer is <laughs> the the dumb answer is well, data sharing is a data sharing isn't is a pretty easy remedy for many problems. It's it's such a low cost. It's such a low hanging fruit. If you if we really want science to be self corrective in terms of other people can check whether what I did is was correct and reproducible, I have to share my data. And this is actually, it should be, it, it has always been mandatory, by the way. Um, so it was always in the, for example, in our guide, in, in the ethical guidelines of the German Psychological Society was always, uh, there was always an, a paragraph saying um, public data should be publicly available. Nobody, oh no, no not nobody, but <laughs> only a tiny fraction of people actually took care of that. And now is the time to change this. And it's such a low-hanging fruit. So let's do this. That's, that's, the, that's the dumb answer. That's the stupid answer. And the, and the more interesting answer is, I think that I, can, um, I think of data sharing as a social dilemma. Um, I think that um, making your data publicly available um, actually pays off for an entire field if not only you does it, but many people do it, if it's part of a culture. And um, as I said before, one of the one of the anxieties, especially of early career researchers, was that they might be taken advantage of if they share their data and others won't. Um, and and I can totally understand that. And I think from uh, from from the perspective of someone who's interested in social dilemmas and how to solve social dilemmas. Um, and and w- one of the answers uh, for for the question, how do we solve social dilemmas is uh, by building trust. Um, so in a in a field, uh, social dilemmas can be solved by building trust um, the, or to frame it negatively. Um, if I th- if I have if I am suspicious that others might take advantage of me, then I won't be cooperative myself, and so on. So we have to raise um, a level of mutual trust in in our community um, to increase the likelihood of data sharing. And how to do that is something that fascinates me, also from a social psychological point of view. It is a social process. Science is a social process. You, you, you say it fascinates you. So it's like a first motivation. Mm-hmm. But your answer is about why why uh, reproducibility and why data sharing is important in itself. Mm-hmm. My question is, what motivates you, like you uh, as a researcher? Yeah, it has something to do with my interest in social dilemmas. I see, mm-hmm. I think that many... Um, I, I actually think that many uh, many things we do in science are, uh, or I think that many uh, many social dilemmas are baked in 
our everyday process of doing science. Um, agreeing to write a review for an article, agreeing to go on uh, on a board which make which assesses research proposals and so on. This is a this is um, I mean somebody has to do it, otherwise the system would collapse. Oh, we have to change the system. But as long as there's an there's a peer as long as we accept peer review as one of the cornerstones cornerstones of um, uh, gatekeeping in science, somebody has to do it. Somebody has been willing to do it, and there are social dilemmas really all along the way. And I'm interested in I mean, I'm personally interested in so from a theoretical from social psychological point of view interested in um, how does it work in people's minds? Um, mm. So how do they con do they actually see? Do they understand the social dilemma? Um, how do they deal with that? What are the necessary individual level and structural level, systemic level prerequisites for solving the social dilemma? What does trust have to do with that? I find that yeah, I find that uh, conceptually interesting. <laughs> What, what's the next step now you you're in MetaRep doing your studies on the contextual effect of a replication? You have many different uh, studies. What is like the next step? How, how do you envision yourself in the next years? Yeah. Well, good question. Not sure. Um, one thing, one, one let's say high level construal that I'm interest, interested in, high level construal question that I'm interested in is what are the methodological standards for application research? Uh, we do have methodological standards for primary research, for original research. We have lots of checklists on how to run a study. But there's not much, or it's it's, it's evolving right now. Um, criteria for um, uh, conducting good meta research, for example, replication projects, and this is something I'm interested in, and I would like to see a consensually consensually shared list of uh, criteria for conducting good meta research, replication research, for example. And also, I'm I'm. Um, I'm very looking forward to seeing how MetaRep, how our consortium develops. We'll have the second funding phase starting in 2024. Uh, and I'm very curious to see how the projects will look then. I guess uh, we will have more projects in the consortium who will be looking at the effects of scientific reforms, of of new practices, so it's the more evaluation-focused uh, projects that probably will be dominant in the second funding phase. And then let's see where uh, where we can take it from there. Um, and it, it, um, I would also like to see um, data management, the, the 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 use of scientific of of new scientific tools um, being built in. Uh, training programs for doctoral students, for doctoral researchers. I think that is a, there's a dire need for structured training programs for early career researchers on how to use these tools. Yeah, yeah and I would love to see more development. Yeah, this is a question. Uh, I, I talked with a group of researchers on, on Twitter yesterday. We have several checklists for everything, like tons of checklists for everything. We have lots of list of criteria. We have lots of different tools that 
one one researcher or one group of researchers is doing like a shiny app here um, uh, and, and, and it's very difficult like if we put ourselves in the shoes of someone who doesn't know about all of this and wants to learn a bit it's very hard to know where where you start actually yeah. the the gap is so big and the people pushing the field of open science reproducibility are so hard with themselves and the others that sometimes it's a bit scary to know where is the first step. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that especially early career researchers who come on board, who just finished their master's program and have a degree and now want to pursue a PhD. And I, I mean, uh, talking to the to people in my group, for example, there's a lot of there's a lot of intrinsic motivation. Hey, let's do it right. Right. But then again, they get easily lost in all of those new standards, new tools. And then they wonder what is worth pursuing? What is a must? What is a no go? And What's your answer on that? Because you're, you're, you're asking questions. But what is your answer on that? What, what, yeah, what is your um, recommendation <laughs> at the first yeah. step? I have to admit that I'm I don't I cannot give right now. I cannot give any definite answers. Um, there are no definite answers right now. <laughs> I think that's okay. Let, let's talk about my recommendation and then you, you tell me what you think. Mm -hmm. I think that the first thing is to learn about pre registration and poor analysis. I think this is like the first important steps. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? I totally agree. And uh, what I see now, at least in, in many of the program, many of the undergraduate programs in psychology in my country, um, they are building that in um, uh, so pre-registration is something that is now being covered in many of the undergraduate programs. For example, we require our um, bachelor students to pre-register their hypotheses and analysis plans, and that is bachelor students, right? Yeah. Um, and power analysis is something that they learn in their first or second semester when they do inference statistics. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is not the case in France. <laughs> okay, I see. Now, in in France, you can you can you can be uh, you, you might learn it during your PhD, but that's all, uh, or you might not. Like okay. it's not the case. Yeah. yeah, this is a bit complicated, a bit more complicated. And I also think that the use of register reports is something that will be mandatory in the next years. Like you have the templates on OSF now. I think it's something that will. I think pre-registration might also disappear because of register reports, uh, but I'm not sure about that yet. Yeah. I thought you would say data sharing, <laughs> but you you didn't in 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 your recommendation. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, in in general, I would say data sharing is one of the belongs to one of the um, the musts, the must dos. But then, but of course the question, which platform do you use, do you want to? I mean, there are so many tools for building, for example, a file that contains the metadata for your raw data. Um, and I cannot give a clear, crystal clear and, and correct recommendation on which of these tools my PhD student should use. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because there's so much dynamics. There's so, it's so, the field is so volatile. There's so much, so much development. Um, and it's very hard to keep track of all these developments. Yeah, clearly. 
Okay, so we, we will finish without any clear recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for, for your time and for this interview. Thank you.